Judges chapter 12. And reading only verse 5 through 7 for the message this morning. And the Gileadites took the passages of Jordan before the Ephraimites. And it was so. That when those Ephraimites which were escaped said, let me go over. That the men of Gilead said unto him, art thou an Ephraimite? And he said, nay. And said they unto him, say now, Shiboleth. And he said, Shiboleth. For he could not frame to pronounce it right. Then they took him and slew him at the passages of Jordan. There fell at that time of the Ephraimites forty and two thousand. And Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then died Jephthah the Gileadite and was buried in one of the cities of Gilead. Turn with me in your hymn book, please, and stand with me and sing together. Number 461. Dear Savior, when my thoughts recall the wonders of thy grace, lo at thy feet, ashamed, I fall and hide this wretched face. 461. Dear Savior, when my thoughts recall the wonders of thy grace, lo at thy feet, ashamed I fall, and hide this wretched face. Shall love like thy be thus repaid of our ungrateful heart by her slow cares detain betrayed from Jesus to depart from Jesus who alone can give true pleasure peace and rest when absent from my Lord I live unsatisfied unblessed but he for his own mercy's sake my wandering soul 
restores. He bids the morning heart partake the part of it Oh, while I breathe to thee, my Lord, the title in your bulletin that this is part three of a brief series, chapter 12, entitled Great Triumph Breeds Great Trials. But under that title, I have had three messages, will have had three messages, and each of them having their own title. The title today, How Shall We and then in quotes frame, order, and dispose end of quote our lives. You shall have better understanding of that title in the message. How shall we frame, order, and dispose our lives? Over the past two weeks, we have spent our time in two messages already drawing from these first seven verses in Judges chapter 12, lessons of usefulness to our souls. I have fixed our hearts, I hope, on the plain yet powerful intent of God's Holy Spirit in recording these scenes. As you know, you know me, I am never interested in mere academics in my messages. I am never interested in mere academics, but am interested only in that which is plain and practical 
that which may be useful to our souls. Brother Jacob and I had a brief conversation last week in the jail as we were waiting for the second group of men to be brought to us. And I was saying to him again at that time, there's a vast difference between preaching and teaching. Preaching is meant to strike the heart and change the life. And that is my design in all of my preaching. Having said that and holding that conviction, there remains for me then in these verses only to pick up a very small basket of summer fruit tucked away in the lines of these sacred verses. I would take very little of your time this morning to extract two or three more lessons from the record. The first lesson, and painfully obvious it is, notice with me in this inspired record, notice the number whose lives were sacrificed in this malicious, fatal folly. The Ephraimites have come out in pride and wickedness, and as I brought a message entitled in that order, I brought a message pointing your heart to their seeking vain glory. They have come out in huge numbers, in mass as it were, to come against Jephthah with this lying accusation to bolster their vain glory. And if we notice at the end of verse 6, you'll find that horrible number, 42,000. 42,000. This is no small number. 42,000 of Israel's covenant-born sons. And I would, dis- I would extract from that a lesson. In the words of the ever-wise Rogers, he said, How many agreed together in this evil who could not be enticed to forge themselves together with Jephthah in the pursuit of something good. Oh, he said, Men find it hard to league together in any act of good or holiness who will quickly league together in evil. 42,000 had no difficulty in quickly readying themselves and bonding themselves together to engage in this evil thing against Jephthah 
and against the Gileadites who would not be persuaded to league together when he sought their help to fight the battles of the Lord. <laughs> oh, here's a lesson. Here's a lesson. How quickly and how many are ready quickly to lead together in evil who cannot be brought to cooperate in good. Is not our Lord himself, as in all other things, is not our Lord himself the supreme example to our hearts typifying this truth I preached, I referred to it already, but I preached last week in the jailhouse out of Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13. When Jesus came to the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? It's an interesting response. They say, they said, some say thou art John the Baptist. And some say Elias. And others say Jeremiah. Or one of the prophets. Could I point your heart to the fact that they could not even agree on who he was. No agreement at all. No unity at all. They could not even agree on who he was. And yet we find that they freely and fully agreed together to kill him. Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23 and verse 20. Pilate therefore willing to release Jesus spake again to them. But they cried saying crucify him. Crucify him. And he said unto them the third time while what evil hath he done? I found no cause of death in this man. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. And they were instant with loud voices requiring that he might be crucified. They had no problem unifying in the thing. Suddenly those who could not even agree on who he was are in full and easy agreement. To kill him. Oh how many. How many and how quickly. Will join together. In evil. That cannot be brought. To cooperate in good. 42,000. But now secondly. There's a strange and peculiar business here 
strange and peculiar business here about the pronunciation of a single word. Verse 5. The Gileadites took the passage of Jordan before the Ephraimites, and it was so that when those Ephraimites which were escaped said, Let me go over that the men of Gilead said unto them, Art thou an Ephraimite? And they said, Nay. They said unto them, Say now, Sheboeth, Sheboleth. And he said, Sheboleth. For he could not frame to pronounce it right. Then they took him and slew him at the passages of Jordan. There fell at that time of the Ephraimites 42,000. I said it's a strange and peculiar business. This business about the pronunciation of a single word. There was a difference in the way these Ephraimites pronounced their words. The Gileadites, according to grammarians and historians, were accustomed to say, Shibboleth. But the Ephraimite said Shibboleth. Pronouncing the Hebrew letter Shin as the Hebrew Samed. S instead of SH. This is surely no strange thing to any of us, I hope. We're all here very familiar with this phenomenon. Are we not? People from different localities having different pronunciations. This is no strange thing, of course. We talk about it, we laugh about it. Some among ourselves, we joke about it. The difference between they, the way they say things in the north and the way they we say things in the South. And then if you go out to the Midwest, it's altogether different again. Different from the North. Different from the South. It's Midwestern. People in different areas say things in different ways. We have a what has become a very dear expression to us here in the South. When we hear these differences of pronunciation, we quaintly say, Y'all ain't from around here, are you? <laughs> While I have no interest this morning in making a case for the defense of any man's particular accent or vernacular, I would rather point our hearts to a far more weighty matter which this strange test presses powerfully on our hearts. Another lesson must be drawn. While on the one hand we do not want to become sectarian because of some mere trifling differences among us, particularly as to how we say certain words, yet on the other hand, 
Our lesson is we dare not fail to recognize that sometimes a trifling difference may reveal a far greater underlying danger. One that is far more fundamental. One may well say when reading this text, and I'm certain I've heard this attitude from different people. One may well say that it does not really matter how this Hebrew word was pronounced. After all, what difference could it make? Well, my response is, that in this particular incident recorded in our text, it made the difference between life and death. It made the difference between life and death. Because it revealed something far greater than a mere pronunciation. It revealed the real character of the speaker. The beloved Dr. Gill said this, Shibboleth, which signifies a stream or course of water at which they now were. And so it was as if they had bid them say, may I pass over the stream of this river? And this being the case, though it was done to try them and by their pronunciation learn whether they were Ephraimites or no, they were not upon their guard, but in a hurry and at once expressed the word as they commonly said it, Shibboleth. Pronouncing the letter shin as if it was sin. Just as the French pronounce S like a T, says Gil. And though the Gileadites and the Ephraimites were of the same nation of Israel and spoke the same language, yet their pronunciation differed as did that of the Gilean, uh, Galilean Jews from others in the times of Christ. And so in all nations among the Greeks and Romans and among the people in different places, they pronounce words in a different manner. Being used to pronounce otherwise, the text tells us he could not frame the organs of speech or so dispose and order them as to say Shibboleth. So he did not frame, order, and dispose. And there's my title. He did not frame, order, and dispose his words rightly. He was not careful to do it, though with some care he might, being not aware of the design of the Gileadites. They were in haste. They came to this river, were told to ask permission to cross it. 
And when they used the word, their true character was revealed. Oh, what telling words are these from our good doctor. They did not frame, order, and dispose their words rightly. Could I just exhort you this morning that the way you frame, order, and dispose your heart will come out in the minute details of your life. You get it? I'll say it again. The way that you frame, order, and dispose your heart will come out in the details of your life, especially in the midst of danger. Oh, how well another scholar said it when he said this. No man can ultimately conceal his character. It will come out in his countenance. It will color his speech. It will shape his very actions and affections, especially under pressure. No man can ultimately conceal his character. It will come out in his countenance. It will color his speech. It will shape his very natural affections and actions, especially under pressure. Can I just say it to you this way? The smallest incidents, yes, even a trifle, may disclose matters of the heart of the greatest weight. Hmm. The smallest incidences of our life, yes, even a trifle, may disclose matters of the greatest weight. (laughs) In 4th century mythology, the cackling of geese saved Rome. Peter's words in Matthew 26 verse 73 gave way his true identity. Did it not? And how often some byword or incidental action of ours tells all around us the truth about our heart's real condition. Just some trifle. About the only thing my wife ever spent our time in front of the television to watch is either a documentary or what we call a good mystery. I confess I'm not good at that. My wife usually 10 minutes into it has the whole thing sorted because she has such an incredible capacity to note slight trials that I don't see. I pass over them. Every nuance is a commentary. Do you hear that? 
Every nuance is a commentary. If you can read it. We would learn from this text. Oh, if such a small trifling matter as the way that they pronounce this word. If such a small trifling matter may be a true indicator of our heart's condition. Oh, how closely must we know and guard our hearts. The word of our God says in Hebrews 4 and verse 12, that it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. David prayed in Psalm 19 and verse 14, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. O my soul, O my soul, this morning, if every trifle in my life and speech is a microscope into my soul, blessed Lord, help me to guard my heart more nearly. Help me to guard my heart more nearly. If every word is a microscope into my soul. Oh, I wonder. I paused in the writing of my notes here. And I spoke these words to myself. I hope you'll take them to yourself. I wonder when I am asked to pronounce Shabbat. I wonder what does God hear? What does God hear? He knows the truth. And the slightest thing gives it away. So much more I could say on this. As I said, I'm not setting forward some defense for one person's pronunciation over another. That's the test that was given in this text. It's a strange business. Strange business. But it was effectual because every trifle of our lives reflects who we really are. So much more I could say, but I'll not take the time. Now could I just point you to yet another lesson from our text? Notice these men there, the word is using the second part of verse 5, the same word that was translated fugitives in an earlier verse. They're called men who escaped. These fugitives avoided death in battle, but they were taken at last anyway. They escaped from the battle. I don't know how, but they did. And Jephthah had anticipated that. And so he sent out his troops 
to guard the passages of Jordan in front of them and intercept them so that they avoided death in the battle but were taken at last anyway. And here's a lesson we learn, if you will. There is no escape. They thought when they had escaped from the battle, no doubt, they thought they'd return to their homes and they were free at last. They thought they had made it. They thought there'd be no consequences, but God intercepted them. And I say to you, learn this lesson. Every sinner learn this lesson. There is no escape from the judgment of God. He'll track you down. Amos chapter 5 and verse 18, the prophet describes the desolation and destruction. He describes the judgment of God that will come on these people and note the words that he uses to describe it. He said, Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. Amos 5 and verse 18. Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. It is as if a man did flee from a lion and a bear met him. He thought he got away from a lion, but he met a bear. Or it's as if he went into his house and leaned his hand on the wall and a serpent bit him. He got into his house. He thought he's finally safe. And panting, he leans against the wall and a serpent bit him. Shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light, even very dark and no brightness in it? I say to you this morning, learn a lesson from these men in this record. Learn this lesson. You will not escape the judgment of God. You will not. You will not. You will not escape the judgment of God. He'll track you down. He'll intercept you at the river. Learn a lesson. But now finally, I would be remiss if I failed to close our hearts without the blessed message from verse 7. And Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then died Jephthah the Gileadite and was buried in one of the cities of Gilead. While this verse is surely very sweeping, covering the whole of six long years, while at the same time avoiding altogether the details of Jephthah's deathbed scene. Oh, wouldn't it have been remarkable to be there? With my obsession with that subject, I pondered what would it have been to be there? Listen to this man as he was crossing. But in our text, it is so sweeping 
that it covers the whole of six long years and avoids altogether the details of Jephthah's deathbed scene. Yet, it is a sweeping consolation. Because applied to him here are the ancient and venerable words, that blessed formula that's spoken of Abraham and so many of the patriarchs. He died and was buried in one of the cities of Gilead. What a blessed com- consolation. Embodied in these words is the reminder of God's presence with him and his pleasure in him. (laughs) He died in peace in the home of his habitation. No man can ask for more than that. No man can ask for more than that. He died in peace in the home of his habitation. What a blessed consolation the Spirit of our God would give us in the close of this record. After this sometimes difficult to watch scenes of Jephthah's life, his brethren vomit him out, disowned, banished. Bring him back only to bring him into the middle of war. War for which he sought help and could find none among his brethren. Only to find after his victory that his own folly would deprive him of the greatest love of this earth, his daughter. And then his own brethren would come against him. Hard scenes, I said. Hard scenes to watch. Oh, in the end, we have this wonderful, just blessed one. He died. Six years he reigned, he died. And he's buried in Gilead. What a consolation. But even here, blessed Jephthah, would yield himself up again to be a type of that greater Jephthah yet to come. You see, it was Adersheim who said Jephthah's end was a type of Christ. No father's home had been found to welcome him. No child was left to cheer his old age. He lived alone a solitary life. And he died alone. How it reminds us of that scene of our Lord Jesus. How very alone. Even in the midst of having followers, great multitudes at times, the scripture tells us, and those intimate disciples, yet we find him in scene after scene, alone. Especially in the place of prayer, we 
trying to, in his greatest agony, alone. And then, on the hill of Calvary, again, alone. Crying out, my God, my God. Even you have forsaken me. What a type Jephthah is here of our blessed Savior. Lived a solitary life. Died alone. How like Christ he is. Oh, blessed Jephthah. Even from the grave. You would point me to the one who alone can be my comfort. In all of my exiles, in all of my griefs and sorrows, in all of my wrongs and trials, my God will not forsake me. He died and was buried. Gilead. What blessed words are these? Robbed of the only thing of earth he ever loved. He lived alone. Died alone. What a picture. Even from the grave, Jephthah would point us to the one who was his constant comfort. The only comfort we can find, my dear brethren, is in Christ. I admonish you this morning, using the words of our dear brother, Dr. Gill, let us frame, order, and dispose our lives as he has taught us. And in breaking bread today, we will remember that it was all done alone for us as Jephthah had lived his life for Israel. Turn with me then in your hymn book, please. Hymn number 466. Will you stand with me and sing? Oh. 
with thy blood and all my fears dispelled nor peace nor rest my soul can find till thy dear cross I see till there is humble faith I cry the Savior died for me oh give this truth and living faith this soul supporting view till all things be forever past and all within me